You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hi folks, and welcome to Let's Talk Photography, episode 40. I'm your host, Bart Pushots. This is the first show of 2017, so I just want to take a moment to wish you all a happy new year. Hopefully you had a great time over the holiday season. Maybe you got some new photography-related goodies. Um, maybe not, but either way, a new year has begun, so very best wishes for 2017. And it is, in many ways, a time for new beginnings. And that's what this show is all about, um, in two ways, I guess. So first off, that's the topic I chose, and so that's what we're going to be talking about for the show. But we're also going to talk about it in a new way. I'm still experimenting with different possible formats for um, episodes of this podcast. And something we've not done before is, instead of having a panel with lots of people talking about one topic at the same time, to instead do a number of one-on-one interviews with different people around the same broad topic. Um, And so that's what I did this month. So I sent around an email to the usual list of potential people who sometimes come on the show and basically asked for some volunteers to talk to me for 15 to 20 minutes on the topic of new beginnings. And I left it intentionally broad and vague uh, so that you know, we we could have a nice range of conversations. So there's three conversations you're going to get to listen to. Um, first off, uh, myself and Steve Stanger have a conversation about uh, getting doing more with iOS, basically the iPhone, iPad, and so forth. In you know throughout the year, uh, then I have a conversation with Antonio Rosario that's about 180 degrees removed. Instead of going forward into the iOS universe. Antonio is uh, looking forward to going backwards, well, not backwards, not in a negative sense, um, just back in time to shooting on film again. And then Gazmaz joins me for a conversation on getting stuck into some astrophotography because Gaz has uh, recently moved house and the skies are much, much, much darker. And so now he's inspired to uh, try to get some really nice star shots in 2017. So without further ado, let's go to the first interview. Well, hi there. I am joined by Steve Stanger. Hi, Steve. Bart, how are you? Long time no talk. I am good, and you sound in fine form, which is good. Great. I should say Happy New Year to you, since this is a show all about new beginnings. Yes, and uh, it it really does feel that way on a a couple of different levels. But um, yeah, no, Happy New Year to you too. Excellent. So you're excited to talk to me because you have uh, a, a big new beginning that you'd like to talk to people about. Yeah, I um, uh, I don't know. I guess it was five or six years ago um, among the other podcasts that I produced myself and produced with others. I started doing one called I See, I Shoot iPhone, hmm. which is loosely based on the, um, the great quote by uh, Leon Levenstein, I walk, I look, I see, I stop, I photograph, which I've always liked. Um, the whole idea of that podcast was to kind of take iPhone photography – a little bit further. And even going into it, I knew it was only going to be like a limited, say, 20 episode type show. Hmm. I think I made it to 10 uh, before it kind of just I don't know. I, I kind of lost interest in it in a way where I think a lot of the stuff I was trying to 
achieve and really kind of push in iPhone photography, I kind of I kind of hit the ceiling. I guess is the the best way to put it. Um, it was very limited. I'm sorry, you were going to say something. Yeah, well, I guess back then, of course, the iPhone camera isn't what it is now, so that ceiling was probably exactly. quite a bit lower. Exactly. So, and then, you know, uh, you know, I was very excited about the apps that came out at the time, and what happened is we ran into that thing. Like, I mean, we're still seeing that to some extent today, where you'd have one app and it was like, wow, that's amazing, and all of a sudden you'd have a second app which might have changed just slightly one or two things, and mm. so you kind of started having this redundancy. Well. The whole reason why this came up again, uh, got the iPhone 7 Plus. Um, I have a uh, – uh, actually, two iPads now, but have the uh, iPad Air 2. And again, two things that absolutely blew me away with the iPhone uh, – even when I had the iPhone 6, but so much more so with the iPhone 7 Plus. One, the quality of the camera, and two – and I'm sure this gets you excited too, knowing that you're a photographer also – beyond the Mac geek side that we both are kind of on um, is the whole thing that we have apps now that allow you to shoot raw. Yeah. I haven't experimented with that yet, but that's sort of on my, my list of things to experiment with in 2017 actually is to take, yes, to take my iPhone to the next level actually, because I know that actually, so every year I do a calendar for my family and the 2017 one that I gave out as Christmas presents a few weeks ago, for the first time ever, included iPhone shots. Right. And the thing is, when someone asked me, so which ones are the iPhone shots? I was like, I don't remember. And I can't mm-hmm. tell by looking at them. And no one could tell, oh, yeah, that's clearly an iPhone shot because that's inferior. I mean, they, they are as good as what I'm doing on my DSLR. And I don't even have an iPhone 7. I have whatever whatever came before a 6s or something like that okay you know the one generation back from the the newest and shiniest and they have arrived at a level where i'm able to take shots that are not just okay but shots that i'm really happy with and that right. means i need to start learning how to do raw because then then i can really get stuck in and that's really what i was i kind of started playing around with i i found myself not freaking out if I didn't have my Nikon with me um, or even if I had my Nikon with me and it was a situation where it would have been a little bit either too obvious or too clunky, not the right situation to kind of pull out a DSLR, but the iPhone was fine. Yeah, uh, it, it, it was it was just I was impressed. And, and same thing like you, you know, I was dumping a lot of that stuff, uh, a lot of my iPhone photos, you know, in raw into uh, between Lightroom Mobile and then back to Lightroom on my computer, editing them the same way I would my, you know, my my uh, Nikon photos, the stuff shot with my big camera. And uh, yeah, was just totally impressed. And it's funny that you mentioned your calendar. I actually have a, um, and not to turn this into your photography show, because uh, we're supposed to be talking about Apple and stuff like that. But um, like next month, I have a, uh, 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 photo show that i'm putting on and that's the first time some of the photos just like your calendar are actually iphone originated on the iphone and actually were kind of edited between the iphone and the ipad cool so yeah so i'm kind of excited about that but the whole thing going back to the reason why i wanted to talk to you is again going back to the whole uh iphone 7 and it really did it really started with the 6 and the 6s um also the video quality and i was really kind of blown away with the video quality on the 7 plus uh, 
again, going back to kind of keeping the Nikon away, I was at the um, – back in October, the Photo Plus Expo, the big photo expo they do at the Jacob Javits Center in New York City hmm. and ended up shooting um, a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, both photos and videos using that phone and and was just so blown away when I sat down to take a look at the footage and then went ahead and I'm like, I was kind of impatient. I was actually staying in New York for a couple of days. I said, I can't wait till I get home to do this. I want to put together kind of a little like 30 second video right. blurb of what went on. Sat down with my iPad Air, did a quick search for what video editing apps people mm-hmm. like that are kind of and, and went ahead and put something together with music. And I was like, wait, wow, this is really kind of cool. This is this is the point I want to get to. And I've been kind of saying this for a couple of years I would like to be able to do everything in iOS at this point as far as when it comes to kind of production because that's something I can hmm. take with me fairly easily uh, either on an iPad and I did end up going and buying an iPad Pro, which is just unbelievable. Um, it's uh, – and right now like I've done a couple of um, – and basically the ICI shoot iPhone – was a podcast right now i'm doing it as kind of like a youtube series um i have two out that initially started with some additional hardware i had gone to use with the the iphone the um the dji osmo mobile which is a kind of almost like a steady cam type thing for your iphone again just kind of going along with wow you can really do a lot with this piece of equipment a lot of us already own whether you have the iphone yeah. 7 or 7 plus or or uh, like the the 6s and even taking it further, those two videos, one was done in iMovie on the computer and the other one I actually did in Final Cut. And I'm like, you know what? I'm doing a behind the scenes of actually, you know, what software I use. It's all being done. And I'm actually in the process of doing it right now. It's actually all being done in iOS. The only thing I'm concerned with, and this is where I kind of hesitate, even with photos, I got to get past that point of, okay, I got to dump it on my computer to make sure it looks okay. Right. Right. I mean, if it looks okay on iOS, it should look okay when I upload it to YouTube and then share it from YouTube. So that's kind of the point I'm at right now is um, this third I see I shoot iPhone is going to be completely iOS contained. Okay. Okay. Actually, one thing is a a hang up I still have and maybe I just need to get over it, but – I've, uh, one of my best friends is my Spider 5 Express for making sure my colors are perfect on my yes. monitor. And I just have this terrible hang-up that I don't want to edit on a display I haven't color-corrected, and I can't color-correct the iPad, but maybe I just need to accept the fact that Apple make good enough displays that I don't need to waste my time. But I haven't quite reached that acceptance. Right. Um, you know what? I'm I'm with you there, too, and that's why even with stuff that I've done in Lightroom Mobile... You know, it syncs to Lightroom on the computer. I do that before I share. I'm not even talking about even sending it out to print. Even before right. I share it on Flickr and social, all other social media, I do that. I, I check that. It's only been, I would only say probably the last month or so that I'm kind of like, you know what? Hit that share button and, and just see what it looks like. Eventually, I sit in front of the computer to see what it looks like. Hmm. Uh, video, so I'm okay with the photo side of that, uh, the photography side of that. It's uh, I'm with you there with the video side of that like and this is going to be an interesting experiment to see okay i'm trusting in ios i'm trusting what my screens look like on the uh the ipads 
Yeah. And let's upload it and see what it looks like. And and quite honestly, I'll probably I'll probably upload it as a private video first on YouTube so I could go to the computer and look at it to make sure it looked okay yeah. and then you know and then switch it over to public just to double check that. But uh yeah, but that that's exactly it. It it it's I mean, we not only for photography, I mean back when I was doing computer consulting, a lot of my clients were Apple people and that's what we did. Everything, you know, and they were graphic designers and photographers and videographers that they needed a reference point. That that monitor needed to be color calibrated and color calibrated fairly regularly. Yeah. Yeah. So So I'm sorry, good. Okay, you right. So you're saying that this this new this third incarnation of ICI should have is going to be all about iOS. Are you going to produce it on iOS? Are you going to actually do your your editing your editing that's, of the final product on iOS as well? That's the goal. Uh like I said, the previous two were all kind of shot on iOS but then dumped to my Mac and edited in in various software. This third episode uh, is really what I'm. That's what I'm going for. Is is to do the entire project in iOS. The video's already been shot in iOS. It's already been transferred to the iPad Pro, mm-hmm. and and that's the other thing too. Uh, taking a step back in the way we were talking about photography and really kind of feeling comfortable with doing edits in in Lightroom and and some of the other Adobe products that are out there, and even some of the other um, you know photo editing programs. Again. Mm-hmm. More and more now coming on board and and allowing you to keep it uh, edit, I should say, uh, the raw format. Uh, so, again, you're really not losing anything. You're not dealing with a compressed file at that point. The same thing's happening on the video side. Uh, uh, initially, on the iPad, I, I had used – it's a very simple editor called V, V-E-E. Um, also used iMovie, which is – pretty cool it, it, it's actually probably has almost all the same features that you would have in the desktop version of iMovie on the ipad but the thing that made me really excited and and went you know what i feel kind of a little bit more comfortable with keeping it in the entire ios family is a new editor uh that i just started playing around with i got it about a week ago called luma fusion um normally a uh a 40 app uh, was on sale, uh, but I had heard a lot about it. I was very surprised. I lucked out finding it on sale. Um, but I would almost—it's it, very close. Let's put—I I almost said very close to the way um, Final Cut Pro is. So I, I got to take a step back for that. It's not Final Cut Pro at all. Right. It's, but it allows you to do a lot of stuff that you could do in. Uh, Final Cut. Those of you who use Final Cut Pro, I don't, Bart, have you done any kind of video editing or? Um, I I have, um, okay. and I would use Final Cut Pro X or Pro Pro Ten. Right, right, whatever. Yeah, so right. The, the newer one with all the magnetic cool stuff. Yes, this has this this Luma Fusion has a lot of those same kind of features. Uh, one thing I do like about Final Cut Pro, and it, it, again. It, it, it depends on how you edit video and what kind of uh, editor you are. Hmm. One of the cool things in Final Cut is you don't have to lay all of your video clips out linear. You can almost kind of stack them so you can almost go like three, four deep hmm. um, and kind of move stuff around easily. That's one of the things like LumaFusion has on the iPad, except you're kind of dragging stuff around with your finger. Um, yeah. And what's kind of cool is on the iPad Pro, you're doing that. You, if you have the pencil, you can do that with the pencil. Um, and 
kind of get very uh, finite edits. The audio editing in Luma Fusion is unbelievable. Is it, something you would ex- you know that let alone a standalone audio editor may not have some of those features. It's really kind of neat seeing those features within a video editor on an iPad in in iOS. So I guess the the, the big question I always have w- with using iOS for heavy lifting is how do you get the files to and from your iPad Pro? Is is that where the cloud is going to come in and save us or how the, do you move the stuff around? The cloud, yes. Uh there's also a really cool program that I had discovered and this uh, it's probably I don't know if it's been around since I was doing the original ICI shoot iPhone podcast, but there's an app called transfer. And, uh, that's pretty much what I use for, I I mean, I've used the, you know, the iCloud and and Apple's cloud iCloud, Mm -hmm. uh, to get files back and forth. But if I do need to move stuff a little bit quicker, uh, the transfer app, uh, will talk, you know, you launch it on whatever device you need to share with, you could either pull from that other, you know, the device it's going to, or push from the device that you want to send from. Uh, there's actually uh, it. There's a Mac, uh, or I should say, a desktop uh, component to it, where you can actually do the same thing. You launch the application on your Mac. It sees your your. Uh, I almost said file system. It's really not your file system because again, that's still somewhat protected in iOS. But it does see um, through the apps file area. Exactly. And allows you to transfer it. It actually does tra- does a nice job. It, it seems to transfer pretty quickly over um, uh, over Wi Fi. Okay. Uh, the uh, you know, and again, you can always connect your iOS device. Again, if you're transferring from an iOS device to your computer, you could do it via the connection. You know, the USB, USB cable. Yeah. Um, but again, the clips are short enough, and it's not like I'm shooting a feature movie here. That it has, you know, 400 clips that I'm sending across. It might be 15 where um, Wi-Fi is fine. Now, maybe diving into a little bit deeper and if I'm going to be doing longer clips, then it might have to become a, you know, figure out some kind of hardware solution to actually transfer those files between, you know, from one to the other. But like I said, between iCloud and the the transfer app, it, it, it works really well. And when when you've done your, your all of your work in in whatever app it is you like, is is there a way to safely back up the in progress, you know, the the editable version of your project? That's a good question. Um, considering the video that I'm working on right now is my first straight through iOS yeah. project, it's. It lives in iCloud. What I ha- and I know I could get it from one iOS device to another. What I have not tried, again, from that that editor, uh, from um, the Luma Fusion editor, is retrieving it back to the computer. You well, know, to it, my Mac. So, to but if it's in iCloud, then in theory, if you go, if you enable iCloud Drive on your Mac, you should in theory be able. Yeah, to I should be able to get it. Folder, shouldn't shouldn't you? Yes. You're, then you you're, can back it up with whatever you like, and in theory, yeah. if it all goes terribly wrong, you can put it back. Exactly, and again, that's that's part of this experiment is is seeing if I f- not only feel safe with the visual and audio aspect, 
but feel safe with my files. You know, I mean, that that's something, you know, again, we know each other for 100 years because of Mac podcasting and stuff like that. Mm. But that's always been the big thing. You know, that's great. But, you know, backup, 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 you know, make sure you're able to still get to those those files, um, you know, uh, and also the way I'm approaching it, too. Uh, and again, that's definitely on my list to make sure I'm able to retrieve these files in case something seriously happens. Yeah. Is, you know, does this workflow work? You know, does it, you know, it, that's great being able to say, okay, let's do everything in iOS. But if it's going to take me longer to do this and if there's issues with exporting, then I might as well go back to what I did before is shoot everything, you know, do all the, the rough and raw uh, uh, video capture on the iPhone and then just dump it to the computer and edit it that way. So again, it, it's still kind of right in the middle of this experiment. I'm, I'm excited. I kind of hope it works because if it works, um, you know, one of my goals this year is to actually start putting something out regularly. What that means, I don't know whether it's once, once a month or once every two weeks or three weeks, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try. And what's going to be a big part of that is being able to sit in front of the TV, say, with the iPad Pro on my lap and while I'm watching do, you know, edit video the same way I've done for the last couple of months with photos. Yeah. There's something – the concept of editing video on, on a large touchscreen like the iPad Pro, it, it seems like it's getting closer to the old days when you would be – you know, you have physical pieces of film that you'd be splicing together and stuff. It, it, it feels more more hands-on, like you're more in touch with it than – pointy click with the mouse you know what it's funny i never i haven't thought about that way because i'm actually one of these people that when i learned audio editing it was splice editing you actually spliced quarter inch tape and you had your little splice block with the tape and stuff so you know i never maybe that's it maybe there's that oh, i hate using this term because it's thrown around so much but almost like that organic feel to it it's a tactile experience yeah. you know what i never even thought of it maybe that's it and i know that I, I know I kind of feel that way, and that that's that really is a good point. I know I feel that way when I'm in Lightroom or one of the other, um, you know, photo editing software where you literally are just, you know, using a finger or two to do your your edit, zoom in, that kind of thing. Um, where yeah, where you know, on the computer, it's it's kind of point and click still. So uh, wow, that's a really good point. Maybe maybe that is kind of the underlying psychology of why I'm trying that. Yeah, and it is, I, I know. I think to me, that's always been iOS's secret sauce. Is it's this one level of indirection has vanished into thin air. It's it's usually you know, on all of our other computers, there's you use an input device which makes a a non natural thing on the screen move or whatever. Whereas with, with iOS, it's you're one step closer to being directly in touch with your stuff. And right, I think anything right. artistic that work that's an advantage that's that's something ios has that our desktops don't yeah and it, it's you know just and it's funny just to take it take a step back here because i know there's probably people listening and going well that's great you know you can edit raw or you can sit there and do video i mean there's still parts that are missing i'm not saying it's the end all be all greatest thing i mean uh you know in lightroom what would make my lightroom workflow in ios be absolutely amazing is if i could bring presets over that i've created in lightroom yeah, but see, that's, that's the kind of place where I think the cloud can help us in the long run, because what I've always wanted from the future, um, I, I made up this term, must be five or six years ago, when the internet decided that the problem was that Apple were going to iOSify the Mac, 
And I said that was horse poop. And so far I have been proved correct. Uh, but I decided that what I wanted was not iOSification. What I want is Star Trekification. And in, in the Star Trek world, you use the appropriate form factor for the appropriate task, but the data is always magically available to you. You have never seen Captain Picard pick up an iPad, or sorry, a Star Trek pad, and go, oh, mm-hmm. sugar, it's on the other pad. No, it's just magically everything is everywhere. Right. So he walks onto the bridge, he uses the big science panels at the back of the room, the, the you know, full height of his wall, everything is there. He picks up his pad, everything's there. He picks up his tricorder, everything's there. He goes to his desk with his little faux desktop, everything's there. And that's where I think we need to get to, because then the iPad loses, it, it retains all of the good things it has, like the fact that it's very direct, that it's very portable. And you don't have all this faffing around with making sure the stuff gets there and gets away and gets backed up. If we could just get to the stage where the cloud was fast enough, reliable enough and affordable enough that everything you did was just everywhere. And you just picked up the appropriate device at the time. And sometimes you might be on the road and you'll do a quick edit on your iPhone. Sometimes you want to sit down on a big 27-inch iMac and really dive into your stuff. And sometimes you just want to poke around in front of the telly with your iPad. It's... That's where I want to be. That's that's what I want. Yeah, and I mean, I think I we I think we as in the tech community and the the um, companies we support. I mean, they've taken great steps that way. And and you know, Apple, like any other company, has kind of floundered around a little bit hmm. when it came to online. But um, I mean, really, there is a lot of syncing kind of going on in the background. You know, there's I have a number of apps that use iCloud to make sure things are, you know, do stay in sync between my desktop and iPhone and the iPads. And but I, I definitely understand what you're saying, that that the data should always be available regardless of what device you're using. So, again, you know, it's one of those things where I think the iPad is getting very close or I should say iOS is just getting very close to being able to do this kind of stuff. And listen, just it's as much on the as like horizon, the- right? It's not. It's, it's not high I mean, in the sky stuff. It's it's within grasp. We're, I'm not saying we're there, but we are close. Yeah, exactly. It's close. it's not like stupid. Oh, you silly optimist, you. It it is plausible. And I'm sure you know. It's funny thinking back to the, um, you know, the Mac Roundtable podcast. I I mean, I remember having discussions like this with. Well, it's good, but or it's mm-hmm. getting there. I mean, it's it's definitely again going back to the whole photography side of things. It's definitely workable, but. Like we had both said, I, you know, we like making sure it looks OK on the computer because my monitor, my 24 inch monitor is color calibrated. Yeah. And the same even goes for for video, too. Again, for what I'm doing, I'm not doing broadcast quality, but I mean, color wise, it has to look OK. I don't want to look green. I don't want the people I'm shooting to look green or purple. I want skies to look correct. I want lighting to look correct. I want the everything to look correct. And even on the video side of things, there's certain things where they're getting closer to pull into iOS. There's something in, in video editing um, called LUTs, which is a lot like you know presets in Lightroom where you're basically going for uh, a look. Like it, yeah. it, it reproduces like a film look and stuff or a color grading, which you really don't have on the iPad. There's actually apps out there that come very close. But again, that one little kind of stumbling block that's great you're color grading, but we're applying these kind of, you know, filters. But if you're not 100 percent sure of what the rest of the world's going to see or what that video is going to look like off your iPad, again, that's a little bit 
of a concern where, again, maybe it's not for prime ready for prime time, but I would almost say for a serious hobbyist or a prosumer. And that's one thing I'm trying to prove to myself is kind of keeping everything with an iOS doable. Yeah. So, yeah, so I guess what I'm sort of hoping I, I what I'll be keeping an eye on as I, as I watch you do this experiment and, you know, release these things, I'm sort of going to be watching it from the point of view of you know, what are the implications on my my iCloud data quota? How 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 much can I how much, how well does it actually work in practice compared to in theory? And how far away are we from my ideal Star Trek universe? So, the, you know, that's, that's what I'm going to be looking for while, while I watch you right. play around with this. Uh, I guess the obvious question that I'm sure all the listeners are asking is, okay, great, this sounds interesting, Steve. How do I follow you? How do I make sure that I see all of these great things you're going to produce? Uh, Well, the easiest is to follow me over on Twitter at TMASteve. And my website is actually stevestanger.com. But if you follow me on Twitter, that all connects back to my website Anyway, uh, my website is is mostly, um, you know, for my photography side of life. Uh, There is a blog. That's another thing I promised myself this year. And um, there's a blog on there that I think the last time I posted something was probably about a year ago. So it's it's to pretty much keep up. And again, regularly, I don't know. Um, But pretty much the – my Twitter account, I do share pretty much everything – and anything there. So that would probably be the best way for people to um, follow me and see what I'm doing. Okay, so you're not planning on releasing it as a traditional ye olde podcast. This is this is going to be YouTube videos it's, or whatever. So following yes. you on Twitter is the way to keep an eye. Yep, on Twitter. And uh, I, once I get this behind-the-scenes video done, I was going to post the previous two and this third one, again, this behind-the-scenes that was going to kind of kick, re-kick off my blog on my website. But yeah, uh, yeah, it's not going to come out as a podcast. And quite honestly, depending on how this goes, uh, if I can sit there and get decent audio quality off the iPad, which I know I can, hmm. I mean, that would be kind of a neat experience uh, experiment to do too, is to see, wow, is it possible to produce a podcast staying within iOS? So a podcast made on iOS about making photos and videos on iOS. Like yeah, wouldn't it. that? Yeah, it's very yeah, it's very meta. I guess you know it's kind of uh, you know behind the scenes of the behind the scenes. Well, that could be fun. Uh, if yeah. someone were to hypothetically point their old fashioned RSS reader at your blog, would would that would that get them to see all your cool stuff you're working on? Okay, uh, not someone is me. I'm, I'm one of those weirdos who still. Use I know RSS. you're. You know what? I'm not. It's funny. I'm in the process of updating. The, I I am pretty sure I did set up that blog. To have an RSS feed. I'm not 100% sure. I mean, it should just be stevestanger.com slash blog. I'm not sure if it's still generating an RSS feed. Well, but I will definitely add that on there if perfect. it doesn't. Excellent. I think, I'm, like that, I said, I'm not 100% sure stick, it is. I'm going to stick that your blog into my RSS feed, and then I'm going to watch you along for the year and see how you get on. <laughs> okay. By the way, I like your. I really like that font you're using on your website. Whatever that font is for the Steve Stanger in blue, that's lovely. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's. Um, I got to tell you, I. You know my background. I was a consultant, and, and part of what I did was um, website design for a long time. I had clients and stuff that I did that, and when I kind of got away from doing that, I'm like, you know what? I really don't want to. I want to. The initial idea behind that website was. 
I want to spend more time contributing content than worrying about the behind the scenes and yes. editing and stuff. I got involved with Squarespace, I guess about three or no longer than that, probably closer to five years ago. And I, I love them. I mean, there's there's certain things and it's, it, it's limiting in some ways. But if you actually do have a background in any kind of HTML or coding, they do actually give you some hooks into that that you're able mm -hmm. to go in and actually insert some code. Like even if you're on the home page and that slideshow, that's not something mm -hmm. they offer. So that was something I actually had to figure out how to, to, have, to have it go in and, you know, do that that slideshow on the homepage. So I like Squarespace's. They're I pay for them. They're not a sponsor of any kind. So, um, but yeah, I, I it's definitely worth what you pay for as far as the security, any updates that need to be done get done behind the scenes. And um, yeah, I mean it, it it just between the um, I mean everything from the the, the fonts. Uh, it to looks the, good, yeah. It's just, yeah to it's, your website, yeah. I mean, again, they're they're really kind of set up in a way. I mean, they they there's probably I want to say hundreds. I don't think it's that many. Um, that's of, plenty, of different though. templates to choose from. But you know what you can do is again, you you don't you if you don't know HTML, it's a. I know it sounds like an advertisement for them, but it's a great service to be part of because you don't need to know anything. You can just supply the content. And it's a lot. It's pretty much a drag and drop interface. Or taking a step back from that, if you do have some technical knowledge when it comes to, like I said, HTML or the web, you can actually dig a little bit deeper and do some kind of cool behind the scenes stuff with them. So that that's why I mean, for the foreseeable future, I see myself sticking with them. Well, that's good to know, and that's that's good first hand experience. Um, yeah, I'm still in the WordPress era, but that's yep. mainly for the fact that I've had a WordPress blog since 2000 and something beginning with a zero. Right. And <laughs> the thoughts of moving is just like that's effort. Whereas if I keep clicking update on WordPress, it all seems to keep going along. Um, okay, but someday that's going to stop being the case, right? And I'm definitely interested in first-hand experiences in these kind of services where you get to focus on your content instead of focusing right. on being a webmaster. Not that we use that word anymore, but you know what I mean. But I know exactly what you mean because I was that way since for, forever. I mean, I remember building, you know, actually coding my very first website. I, I was out of college. I was working for another college. And they're like, guess what? You have a web page. And I'm like, what's that? I mean, <laughs> kind of knowing what, you know, and because it was still very early, you know, I mean, very, very early in the, the days of uh, public the internet, yeah. the web and 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 going to Barnes and Noble that day or a day after and, and picking up, learn how to HTML or HTML for dummies, something and sitting down and um, put, getting my first, you know, hello world type uh, web page up and then going from there and and. Like I said, it, it I watched it progress and it really got to the point. I mean, I did try WordPress. I, I um, had a, uh, a a website for my company when I was consulting and it was WordPress initially. And it really did kind of get to a point where, again, when I wanted to do a – when I finally got stevestanger.com, um, I didn't want to have to worry yeah. about any of that behind-the-scenes stuff like I said. Yeah, just, just write what you want to write, share what you want yeah. to share, and don't worry about how – yeah, exactly. As liberating is what that is. It is. And also they do have some pretty cool um, you know, iOS-based tools too. So that was something I was looking at also. I haven't done 
uh, blog entries from there. What's nice is my galleries on there are actually doubled on my iPad. So any changes I make to the gallery on my iPad uh. will transfer to the website. And anything I make on the website, of course, transfers to iOS. Plus, they also have an app so you can look at your statistics, which, again, well, since I really fun, don't right? have – yeah, that's always fun to look at. And, you know, I guess once I start really kind of posting regularly, yeah, of course, I'm going to want to look at that. Yeah, cool. Well, Steve, thank you very much for taking some time to have a chat to me. Um, very best of luck with this project. It's, it sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. And I know I am going to be watching you very carefully because I'm probably going to be, you know, a year or so behind where you are. But, you know, you go ahead, you pioneer, you take all the risks, <laughs> and then I'll just piggyback off your results. Yeah, you can, and then I can show you, okay, well, let's say I spent this much on this and this much on this, and guess what? You don't need that, and you don't need that, and you don't need that. So that's fine. Listen, our our mutual friend, you know, Victor Cayo said this. If there's something you want to learn how to do, do a podcast. Yeah. yeah because that, that basically it true. forces you to learn and kind of do these deep dives into what we talked about, into software and how that all works when you're trying to share it. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Bart, I appreciate this. This this was awesome. We've I know I've been trying to talk and get together with you, you know, through Skype Pesky and time and, zones. It's very annoying, uh, isn't it? Time zones and, and this thing called work that, yeah. you know, we, we seem to have to do. And, you know, you pick these times and I'm like, oh, I'm working. But today yeah. this worked out great. So I'm, I'm glad we were able to get together. Excellent. Well, again, thank you, Steve. And uh, it's stevestanger.com to watch what you get on with. So, uh well, keep up the good work and talk to you soon, I hope. Very good. Thank you. Okay, well, I have Antonio Rosario with me now. Hi, Antonio. Hey, Bart. Uh, Happy New Year, I guess. And the very <laughs> same to you. The, the very <laughs> best wishes for 2017. Yeah, it's 23 days after the New Year's, but, you know, better late than never. Yeah, look, first show of the year, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so thanks for um, having me. Well, I'm trying something new this time, uh, as the listeners already know. So I'm just basically chatting with some of my photography friends, and the topic is rather open. The topic is new beginnings, and so I've sort of been asking people to interpret it how they will. And um, in pre-show, you said to me, "Yeah, so uh, film, as in yeah. that <laughs> sort of chemically stuff that light hits and things happen. That's something where you're physical. going. It's a physical thing." Okay, Rather well, than a right, so I to me, film is something I left behind because digital was better. So, talk me into wanting to go to that retro film day. Oh, I I don't know if I can talk you into. It. <laughs> I, okay, well, no, I'm not okay, sure. No, that's not a fair question. I know what I know, has I you know, excited is actually the question. Well, I'm not sure I'm excited about it yet. So I don't know. You you we, um, heard that when I was speaking to Tom on Episode our last 50. Street Shots podcast. Yeah, I, I bumped into. Uh, a person at the coffee shop that I go to every morning, and he is working for this company called Film Farinia. Um, basically, it's a company that uh, purchased an old film company, a uh, film manufacturing plant in Italy, and they're going to remanufacture film. Wow. And do you remember Scotch Chrome? Did you guys ever have Scotch Chrome over there? 3M? Uh, that is not ringing any bells. So for me, in the film days, it was Kodachrome. Ektar or uh, Fuji, whatever the one Fuji was. Fuji did an 800 ISO one I loved. I can't yeah, remember. I don't remember the name of that. Well, Scotch Chrome was made by 3M, and I think they made it um, in this uh, factory in Italy. 
And it was one of the higher speed films, uh, transparency films that you could buy. Transparency meaning like a slide film, not a negative film where uh-huh, you need to make okay. prints. The slides were, you know, So does that mean that it project. was in true color rather than in inverse color? Exactly. And they made a, I can't remember if it was 1600 uh, ISO or back then it was ASA uh, film. fast. It was pretty fast, and it was a very, very grainy, speckly kind of film, but it it, it gave you very nice effects. It was a very interesting-looking uh, uh, type of um, uh, piece of film. And, you know, film went away, but it sounds like this is the the lab – sorry, the um, factory that made it. And so I bumped into this guy at my coffee shop, and he saw my Fuji camera sitting in my um, – you know, my – my coffee table when I was having coffee and that started up a conversation. He told me about this company and it's sort of like the final, uh, you know, straw that broke the camel's back in some way. Like I've been hearing about a lot of people going back to film and film is not, was not terribly exciting to me, uh, up until recently when I've started to try to shoot a lot more slowly with my digital cameras and, I, I've been hearing a lot of people, you know, picking up their film cameras again and saying, oh, I'm going to try this film and blah, blah, blah. And then finally bumping into this guy. His name is David Bias. Um, it was sort of like the hit the nail on the head a little bit. It's like maybe I want to go back and try uh, to see what it's like to shoot film again. So, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's early January, right? I'm sorry, it's late January, actually. Well, it's still January. And it's, all good. it's still January. And I'm thinking, well, what would be the one thing that I want to do this year – that's you know different from last year and and perhaps getting back into film uh not giving up digital obviously but getting back into sure. film to just you know see what it's like now you know after i've been out of it for a very, actually I've been out of it for a very very long time i think i bought my first high end digital camera well no yeah my first high end digital camera was in 2004 and then a couple of years before that i had a lower end digital camera but i think i've been doing film I mean, uh, digital since back then. You know, yeah, totally. so I'm trying to think when I would have last shot on film. Um, yeah, so my my sort of experience of photography is a, is a game of two acts. Uh-huh. So before I became sort of a, a young teenager, not yet a, not, not yet a teenage prick, um, <laughs> I was into photography. And I, I think the high point of that was when... Um, my dad decided he'd had enough of film photography and he was going digital and he gave uh-huh. me his Olympus OM-1. Ah, the famous Olympus OM-1. I, I adore that camera. So that would have been my camera for all of the time I was photographing up until I went to university. Uh-huh. And then when I left for university, the camera got put away and it didn't get picked up again for a decade. And uh-huh. then at, by that stage, the Olymp- the OM-1... It's, I think something catching inside the mechanism. The, the, the shutter fires, but the film doesn't advance. Ah, uh, uh, I'm sure it's fixable. I hope it's fixable because actually I probably, would at some stage yeah. actually quite like to get that camera working again. Uh, and then I just moved to digital. And so that means I haven't probably shot on film since 1997. Really? Well, 98. Actually, no, hang yeah. on. No, I, wait, no, no, that is right, because, uh, yeah, I started university the summer summer of 97. Yeah, no, it would be about then. So you haven't... I haven't shot a single shooting... roll of film since. Okay, so back then, the digital camera was not very good. 
Oh God, no! Um, no, no. I mean, I, I, I had one of the first digital cameras. I still, I still have it. It's a, it was a Casio. Um, it still works too. If I put a AA battery into it, it still, still fires up. Yeah, but the, this there was no was, way to the, take any usable pictures. Yeah, the Yoke Dad had was a Fuji something or another, huge thing physically, physically much bigger yeah. than the OM one. And yeah. I think it was six, was it six forty by four eighty or something? Probably, if that much. Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't think it was any so, less, but like on a modern screen, the pictures from it look pretty stupid. Yeah, um, I, I, I've told you this probably a dozen times, but um, I was in the stock photography business for a while, and uh, I could not really shoot digital for stock photography until the cameras reached a certain amount of megapixels. There were certain requirements. Yeah. So in 2004, when I bought the um, Nikon D2X, which was a 12 megapixel camera, then I could actually create files that I could submit to my stock agency. I had to upsample mm. them a little bit. But prior to that, the digital cameras were not were not high enough. I was still shooting digital, and I was shooting film because I wanted to submit to my stock agency. So I would shoot the film, and then I would scan it, and I would do my my Photoshop work on it, and then output to what was called a, an LVT, a very large piece of film that was a laser uh, printer and essentially and would print the image onto a piece of large transparency film. That's how I would submit my digital images, quote unquote. Um, but it was 2004 when I got the Nikon D2X that I was able to shoot files that were, you know, I just needed a little upsampling in Photoshop. And so that's when I kind of stopped using film. Right. Uh, so overall. if people go back to film these days, is the idea then that you scan the negative or do you scan the print? Or how do you get it from the film back yeah. into the computer? That's the part that I'm not looking forward to <laughs> too much. I could blow the dust off my scanner. That's another thing that hasn't been used yeah, forever. I think I might have to uh, invest in – if I'm going to do that, invest in some new kinds of scanners. Yes, the scanner would be the way to do it. If I'm shooting 35-millimeter film – uh, which I might because I, ha- I still have several 35-millimeter uh, film cameras. I do have a Nikon uh, film scanner, which I think I can still connect to my current computer with a with a FireWire 400 to 800 cable. It's just getting the right software to let it run. Yeah. But there's a whole bunch of problems about that because the film doesn't quite lie flat enough, and when you scan, the edges can get um, curled up. Yeah, so that would be distorted I- then. Yeah, I use a special kind of mount that's what's called a pin registered mount, uh, in which you can you you put the piece of film in there and it and it actually does hold it flat, but it means I have to take the film out of the little mount and then remount it into this plastic mount so that it flattens it out and then scan it. It's a bunch of steps, but that's the that's the bottleneck in the in the film workflow is is somehow getting it onto the computer because that's the only way right now to be able to share stuff. And once you have the film, you want to. Put it in the yeah. computer so you can show it to other people. And well, so, I, okay, so I guess the whole point of this is for you to slow down, and yeah. so I'm guessing that means that you're not going to be scanning in 36 shots at a absolutely roll. Not. You're probably no. going to pick the best. So, <laughs> no. and and come to think of it, I even though I do have uh, 35 millimeter cameras, I think I will probably um, fire up one of my medium format cameras so that it uses a larger piece of film. Uh, which would require me to figure out a different kind of scanning uh, situation because I don't have a scanner that would be able to handle a larger piece of film. And so, when you're saying you'd like, you'd like, you're going to you'd like to experiment with film, are we talking color film or monochrome? Another good question. <laughs> or both? Another I mean, question. they're not mutually exclusive, right? Just not. At yeah. The same well, I, I'm more interested in in black and white for that, uh, and 
this company, Film Ferenia. Uh, I think what I'd like to do is get involved with them. If I get to meet this guy and hang out with him a little more, maybe he'll give me some sample film. But I think what they're doing is producing a black and white film that can get processed in E6. Uh, sorry, not E6. Uh, C41, a black and white film. Is it C41? Oh, you're so Same. asking the wrong person. I know, I know. I, I'd have to look at their website, but it's a. It would would mean I wouldn't have to actually go in the dark room to develop the film. I can. Okay, I, so I would be able you to would bring be, it to some sort of lab. You do, would you Would you see yourself developing, or would you see new? No, new. Okay. no. I'm done with chemicals. I don't want to. Okay. I used to have bad re- reactions to the to the chemicals in a dark room. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I never I never went that route. That. Um, yeah. I had a Toxic. good relationship with my local um, one air photo guy. Where yeah. I would drop in the roll, and he would only develop it and not print it, and then he'd hand it to me, and I'd go home with a little loop, and I'd look at it, and I'd say, "Can you print those for?" Yeah, <laughs> save a I lot mean, of money. I would like to get what's called a contact print, you know, so that I can actually see the images somehow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then whether or not, like, if there's a place that develops it that will actually scan it as well. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll just avoid the scanning myself. Because if it comes from the laboratory, if they scan directly the film after it's processed, there's probably less chance of me getting a lot of dust and uh, junk that I have to clean up. Because that was the one thing I really couldn't stand is that after I would scan a piece of film, I would have to spend an enormous amount of time just getting rid of the dust just to get it into a basic format. So I don't want to slow down that much. (laughs) Well, I guess uh, you want to slow down in the creative bits, not the monotonous bits. Exactly, exactly. So um, I do have a, a two and a quarter uh, medium, well, it's medium format, two and a quarter, uh, so, two and a quarter inches uh, film camera. It's a thin lens reflex. Quarter inches. So, so that's the same six by six as 35, basically. So where I would normally see 35, you're saying it would be two and a bit inches? The A 35 millimeter piece of film is, I think it's about 35 millimeters in, in, in the horizontal. It's, sorry, not the yeah. horizontal, the diagonal. Measurement. Okay. Uh, the two and a quarter piece of film. I'm 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 old school, so I'm dating myself here. Two and a quarter piece of film is two and a quarter inches by two and a quarter inches. That's big. Or in otherworldly parts, it's six centimeters by six centimeters. Um, that, that's substantial. That is a substantial yeah. piece of film. It's a big piece of film. And I have one, two. I think I still have three cameras that would hold that kind of film. And does that come on uh, rolls, or how, how does that? How it comes on a roll with a backing of uh, black paper and. It's very old school when you load up the film. You put it in the camera and you have to put the, blacking, the backing paper on it and you have to wind it. And and then when you're done, the the film is wrapped up onto another reel and you have to you have a little piece of sticky thing that you have to lick and, and attach it to. So that the, it's, it's just very old school. Okay. Uh, so definitely going to uh, slow you down. It's going to slow you down. And a piece of uh, – 12 um, sorry, a 6-centimeter by 6-centimeter camera that I would use would only take uh, 12 exposures. In 120 film. I actually don't know what the 120 comes from. If you ask me that, don't ask me. Okay. I don't know. And then there's also 220 film, which is twice as many exposures. It's a, a same size reel. It just has a little bit more film on it. But okay. uh, it's kind of hard to work with. So I might fire up my 120 camera with a, uh, a roll of uh, 120 film. Mm. And and I think do the, I think it's 12, is it 12 exposures? It might be 12 exposures. I can't remember now. It's been so long since I've fired these things up. Sure. It's 10 or 12 exposures, yeah. And would uh, you see that as for street shots, or would you see that as for landscapes or something that you have a bit more control over? I don't know. I, the, the camera that I would want to use, I think I could take sneaky street shots. 
uh, you know, people would probably be so amused by the camera that I'm using that they might <laughs> not give me a second, you know, look. Um, but I think it would be mostly for doing street photography or street portraits, maybe something a little bit more set up where I can, because uh, it's a manual focus camera and manual, you know, it's manual everything. And so right. um, I'd have to, you know, take some time and take the shot and, you know, do one shot at a time. So uh, it might have to be a more set up thing. My my memory of how the theory of all this works is that the bigger the area is that you're photographing onto, the more the shallower the depth of field becomes, isn't it? For the for the lens that you're using, yeah. But it's yeah, I mean, which is why a phone camera is almost impossible to get nice depth of field effects. Yeah, yeah. The thing is tiny. There's no sensor yeah. there. It's why 35 mil is so much nicer than a DX or whatever. Yeah, in the medium formats, uh, you'll you'll get a nice. Um, soft focus background should you choose to get that uh, uh, and there's a little bit limitation in terms of uh, with these with these film cameras like how your shutter speeds are uh, how high you can go in your shutter speeds so there's but, there's definitely some limitations in it so and now the price you pay for that lovely soft focus effect is that your focus needs to be pretty accurate yeah well you know I think I would say not necessarily, depending on what you're shooting. I mean, uh, the okay, whole so, idea of film is is a more about an emotional thing, and so if ah, okay. I'm photographing somebody and they're a little bit out of focus here or there, there's a little bit of movement. You know, I I, I'm, I wouldn't really go crazy about it. Um, I mean, if I was shooting landscapes something like that, maybe. But again, it all depends on what I'm trying to do with the with the image. Not, not to tell you what to do with your own film, but that graveyard you've been to a few times that might respond very well to the old film i it's very interesting that you say that i wasn't thinking about it and i'm like oh okay that's a, that might be a good test place to go back and at least see if the camera's working and come yeah. up with some decent pictures yeah yeah actually it would be on a, especially in the winter right now it's one of the best times to go to the graveyard is in the winter it's just it, it, you know and there's one place me. no one is going to rush you right there's no rushing but um, I, I haven't gotten around to actually buying any film yet. I mean, I'm not waiting for these guys, the Italian guys, to actually get there. They're just starting. So yeah. I don't think I would wait for them to get uh, rolling. I think I would uh, go and just buy some film. And, uh, so but again, I have to it does do exist the still, workflow. Does it? Like, their film, they're just starting. In fact, I think they just got their first line out last week as a test roll. So. Okay, but I mean um, – so. You know, there's no one really making it until these guys get up. So does that mean that there's still old stock lying around that you can buy on? Well, eBay there's film or you can buy. I mean, there's film you can buy. Not, okay. I mean, I can buy Kodak. I can buy Kodak black and white film. Uh, Fuji's got. I'm pretty sure Fuji is still selling some of their films. Um, okay. And are they still making it, or is it just old stock that they're shifting? No, I think the I think Fuji's still making it. I mean, I, I could buy. Fuji Velvia 35 millimeter. It's eleven dollars a roll here in Ooh. New York, which is I know it's a Ooh. lot of money. That's thirty six exposures. So yeah, but it didn't used to cost that much. It didn't used to cost that much. I mean, you know, considering inflation and the fact that the market has shrunk, I'm sure that's not a reasonable uh, yeah. rise in price. But yeah, it's not. I'm not going to run out and buy forty rolls of film right away because I don't have. For, I'm pretty you know. sure I used to spend about three pound because it was still pounds. We didn't have the euro then. Yeah, yeah. On a, on one thirty-six roll. The one twenty film is a little bit more expensive, as I believe, and so I just need to find a place that can process it too. So I have to go through all the things. But that's 
you know, of all the things I'm looking forward to trying, I think it's, it's getting back into, into doing that, uh, as sort of a side, you know, venture, uh, to whatever else I'm going to do this year. But I still have my, I'm looking right now, I have my old uh, Nikon FM2 film camera. It's a total manual camera. I mean, totally manual camera. Does that mean and no light meter or? There is a light meter. Uh, you know, I took, oh, it's still, oh my gosh, it's still lighting up. I'm looking at it and I'm still seeing a little plus sign, which means there's a battery in there. Yeah, because like my OM1 has some some small battery somewhere that is power, powers a little... Yeah, I, I know, but I'm just realizing it probably, up or down depending on it whether probably should not be in space. there. That battery, I can't imagine that it's not leaking. Oh, my gosh, I probably should open up the battery thing. Well, anyway, I'm looking at it, and yeah, the meter yeah, the meter still works. Is it literally a plus, a minus, and then between those is a zero? And the zero lets you know that you have a good exposure. And it sounds like if I do this, it sounds yeah, that's like the, the shutter too, right? I mean, that shutter timer... Is... No, no, that's totally mechanical. That has nothing to do with the battery. The battery only so, runs the meter. So what's making that noise between it's, the clunk and the? Well, it's just a it's a mechanical way of them. Cool. See, I'm opening it up the back. Well, it's whatever mechanics they use to. I suppose you're winding it up, so you're giving it some energy, which it can then use to. Yeah. Fire, wait, fire. And there's springs. I mean, they you know cameras have been using springs and stuff forever but that's one second exposure and this camera can go up to a four thousandth of a second so that's so one second is the longest is it yeah one second is the longest and then i can put it in bulb mode oh well, yeah uh, okay so that's infinity which i can just do on from. and off yeah but it's it's still a great camera black little uh you know maybe i'll send you a couple pictures of it you can put in your your yeah. show notes yeah definitely uh, but a Nikon FM2, it's built like a tank. I once <laughs> dropped it on the floor and bent up the pentaprism, but it still works fine. Wow. So, yeah. So I think that might be the you know the other camera that comes out of uh, retirement to play around with. So we'll see. At least I know it works. Yeah, but, I, uh, I really need to find a place here in Ireland that could give me a price on fixing my OM1. Because I think if yeah. if I got that working again, I think suddenly my my inspiration to try film again would probably be a lot higher because. I actually found that very, sort of particularly with the bold mode, it was actually a very pleasant way to do astrophotography um, on film. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the 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 blue there, there was a certain rich blue you got out of. Um, it must have been Ektar. What Kodak film would have been thirty two hundred? Oh, good question. Uh, was it Ektar? I don't know because I I rarely use Kodak film other than Kodachrome. I wouldn't use Kodak film. So I don't know what their their higher speed film was. Because I had one from Kodak at thirty two hundred, and there's another one I liked from Fuji at sixteen hundred. Neo, uh, that's Neopan was the black and white version. No, uh, these were both color because the thing I loved was that they both got this really rich slate blue for the night sky. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. that was gorgeous. Like if you did a Milky Way shot or something, the the blue from the background was a very pleasing blue. Uh, whatever way those films were color balanced, it was very pleasing. Um, wow! And they were nice and sensitive. So you know, twenty eight millimeter on a thirty five millimeter camera, you yeah, you yeah. could expose for forty five minutes. Oh, sorry, not forty five minutes, forty five seconds up to a minute without having the stars become potatoes. <laughs> and you know, if you're doing sixteen hundred or thirty two hundred, that's the Milky Way is out there, the Andromeda Galaxy is out there, the M thirty three is yeah. out there. You know, it's yeah. it's really pretty impressive. 
Um, yeah. Well, I never shot with the often the higher speed films other than to do some creative effects. When I was shooting inside of museums, I used to like to shoot sculptures. And I used the uh, 3M film that I mentioned at the beginning uh, for getting a, a certain kind of effect. So like the way we would filter things now, uh, I would use the film to give me a certain kind of texture on the marble sculptures. So oh, nice. it wasn't really because I needed the high speed. Uh, it well, was yeah, really the grain I, was, yeah, especially when you went up above 800 ISO, the grain started to become noticeable. It, yeah, it always was noticeable. But with black and white films, it was almost uh, part of the uh, richness and, and characteristic of the image. You know, to have a grainy black and white, you wouldn't really notice the grain. Uh, so, um, yeah. but uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to go high speed or low speed yet. It hasn't, you know. Um, well, yeah, because you have the really creamy smooth of the of the low the low ISO. Is it Hector yeah. twenty five? I used to shoot with sometimes, and that was like the inverse well, <laughs> of because that was just the the grain was like microscopic. What's interesting is I'm looking at the ISO dial on on this Nikon camera, and it goes as high as sixty four hundred. Wow! But when you go down to the far end, it goes down as low as twelve. So I've there never were seen some... a film that low. I, I say I, I used to shoot on twenty five from time to time, but I've never seen anything lower than that. No, I think you. I don't think there was any film that was actually 12 that you could put in a camera, but you could, um, by setting it to 12, change your light meter. Yeah. Uh, and then when you were processing your film, you would process it as if you had shot it at ISO 12. Forcing, so I believe, you, is the term for that. Yeah, yeah, or pushing or pulling the film is what we used to call it. When you push the film, you would shoot it at a higher ISO than it was based at. And if you pulled the film, you were shooting at a lower ISO than it was based at. So you might shoot Kodachrome 25 at uh, ISO 12 and then well actually you couldn't do Kodachrome because Kodachrome had a special process so you couldn't really go to the lab and say push or pull push or pull. actually there was a lab in New York City where you could do some there was one lab that had a Kodachrome processor which you could uh, tell them to do a little bit of work on the film but generally if you send your film to Kodak they would just process it and so yeah they look at it and go well this says 400 we shall process right. it as such right. yeah but if you had a local lab with you you could always uh, do some kind of uh, processing, um, have some fun with it, like overexposing and underexposing, and then you would do what's called a clip test. So you would process, they would um, process, they would clip the film at the leader and uh, process the first three or four frames right. at whatever you told them to do it at. And then you would go back to the lab and you look at it and say, okay, well, uh, you know, push it to two stops or one stop. And then they would process the rest of the film. They held the other rest of the film in the dark and then they would process it according to your directions. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. It, it was expensive because you, guys, you know, almost processed it twice. You had the little clip test and then you would, you know. But I don't think there's any labs that we're going to be able to do that for anymore. I think any, if I'm going back to film, I'm basically going to have to set up the ISO for what I want yeah. and shoot it at that and and just see where we go with that not get too fancy uh i can't afford fancy right now <laughs> well yeah and you know as i say you're going to be slowing down you're going to be doing less so yeah it's yeah, yeah. it could be very interesting well do do keep us informed about how you get on i'm sure we'll be talking to you loads over 2017 so yeah yeah and i mean as a final thing i i didn't think i would get pushed into this in any way i was like i don't really want to do film and but I think there's just enough of that going around these days. I think film is making a little bit of a resurgence. And, uh, you know, it's like, like I said, everybody's jumping in the lake and they seem to be having fun. So I think maybe I'll just jump in the lake, too, for a little while and see what happens. Yeah. You see, I thought I wasn't going to be interested either. And now I'm starting to think that, yeah, if I can get that camera fixed and 
Yeah, yeah. I'm starting to get. I bet you could buy one cheap. Now. You could buy a used one cheap. Yeah, if I was going, I want my camera back. If I'm going down nostalgia yeah, lane, yeah, I yeah. want my camera back. There is something about having your own camera. Yes, I agree. Yeah, you know, it's basically that camera taught me what what photography is, and because it's, of course it's so manual. Yeah, it it actually made me a much better digital photographer to have started off having to worry about dialing in my apertures and my ISOs and all these kind of things. You know, I just I just checked the batteries on this camera and pulled yeah. them out, and they're not leaking at all. They're little pin batteries, little button sorry button batteries. Yeah, they seem fine. to just last. Yeah, yeah. So so I uh, I don't know. I might be able to use the same batteries that I. Or now they don't seem to be working. I pulled them out. And now they don't work. Oh well. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> Typical. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for stopping by for a chat, Antonio. Uh, very much appreciated. Uh, do you want to remind everyone where they can find out more about you? Yeah, um, on my website is amrosario.com and Twitter and Instagram. I'm at amrosario, but I also spend a lot more time with the Switch to Manual uh, guys, which I'm part of, <laughs> switchmanual.com, and our podcast is the Street Shots Podcast. So, and that's Switch uh, that number well. two manual. That's on Twitter. I'm Switch the number two manual, so Switch to Manual. Yeah, and just to, uh, just to say congrats on 50 shows. That's uh, Thank you. Thank you. Nice achievement. I know you did your 50th show as your 51st, but, you know, hey, whatever. It works. It's the 50th first. Why? Good. Didn't you record a show that was technically 50? No, that was Allison. No, Never mind. It, was a little, it was a little like, you know, it wasn't no, an official 50. Allison, Allison Sheridan, something happened and what should have been her 500th show wouldn't have worked out. So uh-huh. she recorded one, called it 501, and then went back in time and recorded 500. <laughs> I did a little thing before uh, before the holidays to let people know, because we weren't on a straight schedule, so I wanted to make sure people weren't hanging on waiting for me to, to, to do our 50th. So I was waiting for Tom to get married. So. Which is, yeah, so, yeah, it was nice yeah. to hear Tom again, actually. So anyway, um, hopefully yourself and Tom have a very productive year over and switch to manual. Thank you. Well, I'm joined now by the wonderful Gazmaz. Hi, Gaz. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Bart. I, I think we've probably spoken since New Year. I'm not sure if we have now, but Happy New Year to you and the listeners anyway. Uh, were you on the Let's Talk Apple we recorded very early in the New Year? I think I might have been. I can't remember. It's all it's all a blur already, and it's only the 24th. I mean, it's just... Yeah, January vanishes away quickly. It does. So, in this show, I'm talking to some of our um, contributors to the show over the years on the broad and vague topic of new beginnings being January <laughs> and all. Yes. And um, you were saying that you, you hope to enter into a new area of photography in 2017. I really enjoy taking photographs. And in my time, I've taken what I deem to be some really cracking shots. But one area of photography which I've always semi been interested in but never really got a full grip of and that was mainly because of where I lived which was in the middle of a town was night sky photography um, I love just you know looking up at the stars and with the binoculars and, and, and taking a view and especially in my old house we used to get a very good sweep of the moon as it came across the night sky and I took one or two relatively reasonable shots with mm. actually a long lens but I well, for later the moon, found yeah for the moon that can work because there's a lot yeah 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, but obviously, when you try and use a long lens on other objects, especially in town, it doesn't work quite so well. Well, recently, about a month ago, we moved out into the country, and although we are about four or five, possibly a little bit further away, miles away from the nearest town, and I can see the red glow. I think the night sky that I now see is immeasurably different to uh, the night be sky. Fine, actually, yeah, because I'm just thinking back. So my the house I grew up in, where I did most of my early astrophotography, that was uh, that is exactly 3.14 miles from the nearest town because I used to cycle right. to school, <laughs> um, and the days when every kid had to have a little speedometer on their bike. Um, and that was fine. So uh, yeah, there's a hay, there's a, there's a, a halo in one direction, but yes, the clearer yes. the sky is, the less there is in the atmosphere for the light to reflect off. So actually, the better the sky is, the less of a problem the light pollution will be too. So you're onto a winner there. Well, it's equally the town that um, uh, we're close to is is over a ridge. So oh, we're brilliant. Up, we're so we're on a we're on a hill ourselves, which is about ninety meters above sea level. I think it's I think it's about ninety meters above, above sea level, and the ridge in, from which the town is over is also at about I think it's a, at its highest point is about one hundred and ten meters, and mm. most of the town is over and beyond that ridge. So although there is a glow, it's not too bad, and the glow from that town is in my uh, probably in my easterly direction. Uh, so so we're actually on a south southwest facing house so i i look up and i actually i look up and see is it uh pilades the the, well, the seven sisters there? yeah the, the Pleiades yeah. would be the the seven sisters and i i have never seen them as clear as i can see them here and especially through binoculars so that's that's reinvigorated my interest to get Good. my camera out and see if i can take some shots and that's my new beginning i think really Okay, so in terms of uh, equipment, what are you going to be? What are you going to be chasing these shots with? Right, and that's where obviously this conversation kind of kicks in. So I don't have a really wide lens. I have a fast fifty millimeter lens, and I've got uh, a standard lens um, which is an eighteen to thirty-five, but it's not the speediest of lenses. Right, uh, but the eighteen on... is potentially useful. Yes, yes, absolutely, because of that wide angle. So um, obviously I, I may move away from using a, tele- <laughs> a telescopic lens or a, a, a zoom lens unless we see the moon on occasional evening. But even even there's a, there's, a, there's a big difference even with seeing the moon here to when we saw it in the town. Because you had so much residual light in the town, mm-hmm. the moon would still be quite bright and, you know, light up. The, the town but it's not as much as the difference we see uh when we're out in the country but put that to one side so mm-hmm. i know that i'm going to need some wider angle shots so i'm going to be using that zoom lens that i've got on here on its you know lower setting on the 18 mm-hmm. um setting but um i may also try with the 50 mil lens on occasion because of the speed of that lens so is that a 50 mil effective focal length or a 50 mil on a crop sensor it's- it's it's 50 mil focal length and it's a 1.7 prime okay 1.7 nice so okay i'm just so what camera is that being mated to that's uh a a sony uh a65 so what what sort of crop so factor is on those? There, there is that's uh, i can't remember what the crop factor is on that off the top of my head i'm just trying to figure out what it's equivalent to 
Uh, right. Uh, that I'd have to. I'd have to. Let me just see why you're talking around that. Because if Sony labelled their lenses by EFL, and it's equivalent to a fifty mil on thirty five millimeter, then actually that would be fine. If it okay. really is fifty, then it's probably going to be equivalent to about a seventy seventy five, and that'll be interesting. Um, with the one point seven, you, I, I'd be very curious to see how that goes out for you. Actually, that that could be interesting. Right. Because um, yeah, I've um, never. So I have done stuff. I have an f one point four. That's it's okay. So equivalent, it's, and that works very well. Okay, it's got it's coming up with a crop factor of one point five. So then we are talking about 75-ish. Right. So that's probably going to catch... Yeah, you probably fit all of Orion into the field of view for that. So if you catch Orion as it's rising, so you have a tree or something in the foreground... Okay, the... so, so... Yeah, I think so, that could so, work. I think you're onto so, something. All right, so so I've got a camera. Mm-hmm. I've got a couple of lenses which could be useful. Mm-hmm. I've also got, obviously, a tripod and a fairly sturdy... I've got two tripods, one which is quite a light carbon tripod, which I can obviously I take out with me, yeah. but I've also got a, an older, fairly you know, fairly steady and uh, fairly rock steady tripod. Uh, and equally, I've also got a manual... Um, oh, what do you call them? It's uh, the shutter lens. So, where, you know, yeah, you can so manually... you can put on bold mode and basically go yes, for as long yes, as, as yes, you like. Yes, so I've, I have one of those as well. And that is my basic kit that i'm going to be using until i really get into it and start thinking right i now need to get um this this and this but i'm i'm pretty certain that i could do well on the way quite there, a lot with that yeah no you're you're well on the way there i think you should be able to get some fun results and the only thing you might find is that you want to go wider yes uh so i think that with the addition of a, a 10 millimeter lens i really think you'd be done right i, I okay. think you, you'd be well and truly set Funny thing is, I've always wondered about going out and getting a really wide lens, and never really had the compunction to get to go and do it. But now, I think this just well, might good be fun, guys. They're they're, they're <laughs> fun for all sorts of things because. Uh, so yeah, they're perfect for the for the sort of broad night scenes, which are the easiest ones to capture without going stupidly expensive. Because of course, as soon as you zoom in, the Earth's rotation is is completely your foe, and then yeah. you're into buying really expensive tracking mounts and stuff, and you don't want to go that route. Like that's 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 how you get a second mortgage. That's that's not where you want to go. <laughs> yes. Um, so the wide angle is kind of fun because it cancels out the rotation of the Earth by basically zooming out, and they're really good fun for landscapes because they make the foreground bigger, so you can f- just taking like the same sort of distant shot can have infinitely many foregrounds with a wide angle lens because you could move 20, 30 meters and the background barely changes where you might find a pretty flower or a nice bush. So you can really have fun with the foregrounds in your landscape shots with a wide with a wide lens. Brilliant. Okay. So if, if that so, helps so, make it not feel so specialized. So yes, yes, it does. It does. Okay, but I think, cool. to be honest, so the, you're, you're shooting with a Sony. So how, what sort of ISOs do you think you can get away with? Well, I, I, and this is where the conversation really kicks in because um, it, it obviously starts down at a uh, – in fact, I think I start at 50. Let me just have a oh, quick wow. look. Let me, let me just have a look, see if I can get down to 50. Let me turn, turn it on because normally I'll have the standard setting uh, at 100. Okay. So, that's... so there's – I uh, know it's doing it's doing all sorts of things. Let's change the setting. Okay, so why is it not allowing me? There we go. 
Right. So no, I've got no. It actually, it starts at a hundred. Yeah, well, so, yeah, that's more normal. Yeah, and it goes up to we go up to sixteen k. Okay, so sixteen hundred is the maximum setting. No, sixteen k, sixteen thousand. So yeah, yeah. So that's what I meant. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. the maximum setting. Yeah. So the but, chances but obviously, are that will be very noisy, but that may not be a problem, depending on what you want to do and, in software. And so, that and that was a question I was going to ask you because you know you see a lot of people say, oh, you know, you need a lot of be able to get a lot of light in, and most people know. Um, I would hope most people listening to this would know, but the higher the re- number ISO rating, the faster your lens or the less light is required so the shorter your shutter speed you can have but the noisier the image could be so my question to you would be what would be best would it be best to just stick with a low and then adjust the iso rating to see what i get and go up to to something that is acceptable so if i was if i was standing out in a field with a tripod and my camera and i didn't yet know the camera my approach would be Step one is to get focus. So that's the other question for your lenses. Do they have the ability to manually focus? Yes, yes, okay. they do. And do they ha- do they conveniently have a <laughs> distance scale on them? I knew you was going to ask that. The zoom lens that I've got does not, but I'm pretty certain from memory that the um, the fifty uh, mil prime does. See, I think the 50mm prime is, if I were you, I'd start with that one. I, I think that would be a good lens to get your eye in and to start experimenting. Right. Um, so I would put that lens on, I would twist the, the dial to, uh, twist, sit in a manual focus, twist it to the infinity symbol. Yep. Take, a say, a 20-second a test exposure, zoom in on the back of the camera and see if the stars are sharp. Yeah. Just because it says infinity, you may just need to nick the lens a little bit left, try again, see if the points get smaller or bigger. Nick the lens the other way, see if they get... Basically, keep doing that until you get the smallest possible points. And then you know you right. have your focus right. Right. And then I would just start experimenting with the exposure time. So if I go for 20 seconds, are they potatoes or are they circles? If so I go he, for 30 is, seconds... Is, is, there a, is there a tip here? Just nipping back a little mm-hmm. bit to what you said about... Is there a tip here in obviously marking where that point is? Yes, that there certainly is. If you're prepared to do that to your lens, absolutely. Yeah, or, or a, a little it, it may just be a case that you tape. know that actually it's just a millimeter to the left of yeah, the infinity yeah. symbol. Just remembering that position. But I think in in the nighttime, obviously, it, when it's dark and you're, you're trying to use a, a, what light you have, um, sometimes having that little marker might just be might be useful. Yeah. Okay, actually, okay. The best Good. piece of equipment for helping you with this. You know, energizers sell them. They are little head torches that have a red mode and a white mode, and they just take oh, little right. three energizer batteries, and they strap onto your head. One of those, as long as it has a red light option, because if you put on a white light, your night vision is absolutely ruined, and you're in big trouble. But the red light mode while you're working, and then when you go to pack up to go back inside, flip it to the white light and have a really good look around for equipment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's honestly one of my most important pieces of technology. And... Unfortunately, the other thing I use that headlamp for is I have it with me when I'm cycling in the dark so I can fix punctures. And the effing effers who stole my bike also stole my head torch. So I'm <sighs> down a mountain bike and a head torch. And I'm, well, no, I'm not more upset about the head torch, but sometimes I am. Anyway, um, so once you have the focus right, I would start yeah. to experiment. So every every day is going to be a little bit different because if you're... 
if the constellation you're interested in is due south, the stars are moving more quickly than if you're pointing due north by a lot in on our latitude. So you just need to experiment. So you try a 15-second exposure, how circular are the stars, try 25, how circular are the stars, try 30, and go up until the point where they stop being circles. Right. And then say to yourself, okay, so that is as much exposure as is available to me. So I now have my maximum exposure and I now have my focus. And then you can start experimenting with the ISOs. You know, how bad is the noise at 16K? Okay, maybe I'll do the shot at 800 or whatever one step down is, two steps down. And when you come home, you're going to throw 80% of them in the bin, but you'll have a good shot. You see what, I, yeah, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I guess absolutely. the very, very first step I should have said is take the uh, aperture dial and dial it all the way open and leave it there for the entire night. Okay. Yeah, so basically, if your lens can do f1.7, f1.7 all the way, if your lens can do f5.6 as best, well, f5.6 it is. Okay, so so explain to me, um, I'll, I'll, I'll ask the dumb question, explain to me why, why, is that purely because the amount of light that you're allowing through? Yeah, so... That's all, that's all it's doing it for, because obviously, to a certain degree, you, you're going to get a bokeh. In that well, you're process. not because but, you're but focused you're not, on infinity, and that's yeah, that's where I was going to ask the question on that. So, yeah. so because you're focused so far out, that has no impact. It's re- or let, very little impact in this process. Yes. What you're doing is trying to get as much light into that camera as you can. Exactly. So the the way the f number physically works is that when you hit the shutter, uh, a sort of a sort of blades come in and block a percentage of the light, and the, the 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 bigger the f number, the further in the blades come, and the more light has blocked. And so, what you want is those blades to just not move, just stay open, let all the light in, and that means dialing, opening the lens wide up. We call it so, setting the f number as low as the lens can handle. Yeah. And really, you'll get to know your camera. So very. So after the first night, you're going to come home and you're going to look at your shots and you're going to say, "So there's 16k." Okay, if I take it into my favorite photo editing app, actually, I can remove the noise to a level I'm happy with. In which case, great. Use it at that setting. Or you may come home and you may say to yourself, yeah, no. And then you'll know, okay, so although the camera goes to 16K, I can actually only use it up to 800 or whatever. And you'll just get to know your camera. And right. So you won't have to do as much experimenting, but you're always, you should always check your focus. It's so easy. Actually, especially if you're, right, so you, let's say you're pointed at some constellation, you have some shots and it's all looking great. And then you say, oh, there's another composition available here. This comp- constellation has just risen or whatever. And you move your tripod around check your focus you probably knocked it and there's nothing right. worse than doing right. 10 or 20 exposures and then going oh they're all ruined because i knocked my exposure half an hour or i knocked my yeah. focus half an yeah. hour ago yeah yeah okay so you were talking there about constellations and features in the sky mm-hmm. i happen to have the application on my mac called is it stellarium What's the, i pronounce it stellarium i have no idea stellarium yeah, let's yeah. go with that. No, it's got an A in it, isn't it? Yes, I thought. Well, I'm thinking Stellarium. Stellarium. Yeah, I'll go for Stellarium then. Okay, it's a lovely app. I'm very fond of it. There's, there's an iOS version as well, by the way. It looks amazing on an iPad Pro. And we would recommend one of those, of course, so you understand what you're looking at and what's coming up and what's going to be available. Absolutely, and you can plan ahead because if you say, well, actually. The weather forecast is it's going to be great next, you know, in two days, and I have some time off work, so at about 10 o'clock I'll be out. Well, dial it in, you know, and Solarium will show you what's available. 
just be careful to set your location at least vaguely correctly in Solarium. You don't have to be down to the mile or anything. Right. Uh, you know, like Aberdeen or not, not Aberdeen, um, Bristol, something would be good enough. Like even no matter where you are in Wales, if you get what I mean. You'd, you'd, yeah. You yeah. Know, but don't set it to London or don't set it to Dublin. Cool. And if you're going to do, if you're going to try something more fancy, like uh, satellites and stuff, those predictions are hyper local. In those cases, you really do need the decimal point on the latitude and longitude. So, right, right. But for just the general, what will be up in the sky, you're, you'll be fine if you're within a hundred mile. So the key, the key points we're taking from there is um, experiment with um, certainly exposure time and ISO ratings, yeah. and make sure you get that. Uh, that focus right yes and the exposure you're going to have to experiment every time because depending on where you're pointing in the sky it will be different right of course and and, and i suppose that it depends on how bright the constellation is that you're looking at well at, see it's not bright time. so the, the the exposure time you're always going to want as much as you can get you're never going to right. overexpose okay. a night shot you just can't do that so what you're looking for is that balance where you want as much light as you can possibly get without the stars becoming obviously elongated or too obviously elongated and where because your of the threshold mood. is yeah, so where yeah. your threshold is is going to depend on you. Unless, of course, you're going for the exact inverse where you're trying to get star trails, in which case expose away. Um, have at it, you know, for 10, 15 minutes or whatever. And that could be good fun too, by the way. Um, yeah. But yeah, so if, if you imagine, if you were standing on the North Pole and looking up, you would see that the polar star doesn't move at all, the North Star, and all the rest of the stars move a certain equal number of degrees every hour so close to the close to straight up 10 degrees movement is a tiny physical movement whereas down on the horizon your 10 degrees movement is massive but we're not on the north pole so you imagine the north pole's picture and then move it sideways in the sky so some stuff is moving slowly but the stuff on your southern horizon is moving quite quickly right um, actually stellarium is a great way to illustrate that if you go to stellarium and set the time to go fast forward you'll see that some stars move really quickly across the sky and some stars move slowly, and that's why you have to experiment every single time to find the right point. Excellent. Um, actually, yeah, you should do that in Solarium, actually, just to see the dynamics of the sky. You set it so that, uh, you know, an hour is two is a minute or something like that. You know, yeah. a minute is a second or something, and you'll see the dynamics of what's going on in the sky, and then, then you'll see see why things happen the way they do. Cool. And both all, guys, have fun. Yeah, and keep and- warm. Definitely, two pairs of socks. <laughs> definitely, oh, was, definitely, definitely. Yeah, that's a question I was going to ask you. So, um, is it better at one point in the year, or obviously going to be different mm. um, constellations, different stars, and different configurations in the night sky? I understand that, but is the summer or the winter, or is there a better time of year to the take pictures in the sky? Or? Well, there's okay. So there's two big differences. So the the first big difference is if you do it in the winter, you don't have to stay up late. Yes. <laughs> right? I mean, that is the yeah. big difference. Yeah. And then yeah. the other big difference is if you do it in the summer, it's not so bloody cold. True. Very true. But there are There is interesting stuff in the night sky all year round. So in the summer, you have the Milky Way on display. The, the summer months, you have amazing Milky Way views. In the winter right. months, the constellation of Orion and Taurus are dominating the sky so that gives you the hunter orion this amazing taurus you have the the pleiades star cluster you already mentioned and the sort of the v-shaped one in the head of taurus is uh, the, the hades cluster there's lots of really nice stuff in both there's always nice stuff in the sky it's different yeah. nice stuff but there's always nice yeah. stuff the the big thing is if you're a working person 
you can yes. be so much more flexible in the winter. Yes. Yeah, very true. Very true. And uh, also, what about, because obviously the Pleiades um, constellation is where uh, there's lots of shooting stars. Is it late autumn or is it over the winter period? I can't okay, remember. Okay, so the shooting stars come in showers, which are very well defined. And there are apps that will just tell you. So they'll appear to come from a point in the sky. They're actually running in parallel through the solar system and we basically run into them. And depending yes. on yep. where where their stream is relative to us, they'll appear in a different part of the sky. And so they have very defined... So. On the, around about the fourth of January, so in the days, a few days either side of the fourth of January, you have one, you have the the the, the shower with the biggest number every year, but in around about the thirteenth of December, you have the shower with the brightest meteors. They're much fewer in number, but the dust is physically larger, so the yep. meteors are physically brighter. So they're the Geminids. They're really quite fun. Probably the most pleasant shower is the Perseids. They're not the biggest by number, but they're close to the second biggest and they happen just after that time of year when it doesn't actually get fully dark so basically the skies are just actually getting dark usually the weather is good so you have this idea of being sitting out on a dark mild summer night around about the 12th of august very pleasant shower to photograph and enjoy excellent but i say there are apps for that and so there's always there's always something to keep an eye out for brilliant I'm 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 really looking forward to giving it a go now and uh, just Excellent. you know and hopefully um, we've inspired some of our listeners to do the same. Absolutely, because you don't actually need much, and that's what I'm quite looking forward to. Exactly, and the, no matter what you have, you can do something with it, and then you, you'll find where your preferences are, and you'll find the pain point, and then you'll try solve the pain point. <laughs> and there's no Brilliant. point in me telling you what to buy up front because if you hit a different pain point to the one I hit, then you're going to need a yes. different fix to the to, to the fix I got. So for me, the fix was a 10 millimeter lens, which I absolutely adore. It's, of all the lenses I've bought, that's the one I love the most. So, Anyway, Gaz, thank you very much for taking some time to, to join me for this chat. Would you like to tell remind the good listeners where they can hear more of your stuff and follow you and so forth? Well, I don't do much. Uh, I occasionally appear here for a little bit of photography. Very, very occasionally it is. Um, I do enjoy taking my pictures, but uh, a certain chap called Guy Searle and I do a Mac podcast uh, over at my Mac. So you can find our ramblings, let's call them that, over at the mymac.com website. um, And we're under the MyMac network. Uh, And if you want to contact me on the Twitters, just go to Twitter and put in Gazmaz, J-Z-M-A-Z, and you will find me. Excellent. Thank you very much, Gaz. And that brings another episode of Let's Talk Photography to a close. Uh, a reminder, as always, that you can find show notes with links, etc. over at lets-talk.ie, where you will also find ways of supporting the show. Um, in a financial sense, there's three options. There's the good old-fashioned, straightforward PayPal donation. There is the uh, Patreon link, and that is... The way of supporting the show that helps me the most because it's a very efficient mechanism for giving regular small dollar amounts and the bills come in every month and the Patreon payments come in every month and we're getting close to the point where I can pour all the Patreon payments into the bills and have them break even. Not quite breaking even yet, but we're getting close. So I'm hopeful in 2017 that we'll we'll, we'll make that happen with your help. Uh, and then the final link in there is to our Zazzle store where you can buy uh, merchandise, um, 
coffee mugs and so forth. The insulated coffee mug is actually really nice. I drink out of one every single day and they're very high quality. They keep your coffee warm for a nice long time. And of course, you become a walking advertisement for the show, which uh, it helps me in the sense that when you buy it first, I get a small commission. And as you wear it, you're spreading the news about the show. And of course, that is the other way in which you can help the show for absolutely no financial outlay whatsoever. Tell your friends, tweet about the show, review the show on iTunes or wherever it is that you subscribe to podcasts. All of that really helps the show and is, of course, really appreciated. And finally, you can go to the website to submit listener questions. And I'm hoping to get a few more listener question shows done this year than they did last year. So if you have any questions, submit them there and we'll try and answer them in a future episode. Well, that's probably enough of me rambling on. Very best wishes again for 2017, and I will talk to you next month. And until then, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hey, David, this week on TechFan, let's talk about Apple. Uh, don't like it. Yeah, okay. Uh, Windows? We can talk about Windows. Boring! Um, yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of cool things in 3D printing going on. We could we could talk really? about... Cool? No. I don't think so. Uh, uh, what about, like, uh, Raspberry Pi? We've we've discussed that in the past. It's TechFan. No! Uh, you're, you're just being difficult now. What do you want to talk about this week on TechFan? How about we talk about Apple, and then a little bit about Microsoft, and then the Raspberry Pi? You suck.